ABC Listen. Podcasts, radio, news, music and more. Mountain biking is a growing international sport and Australians are some of the most enthusiastic cyclists. In Tasmania alone, the success of mountain biking tourism has had a big impact on local communities. For example, in the small town of Derby in northeast Tasmania, a large investment in its mountain bike trails turned the community's fortunes around. Now, 30,000 tourists visit those trails each year. On the Gold Coast in Queensland, it's a different story. Bikers and conservationists have come head to head over changes to mountain bike trails in a popular national park. I'll tell you more about that later. I'm Sinead Mangan and this is Australia Wide, coming to you from Wadjuk Country, Perth. Today was D-Day for the expansion of the massive Wyangala Dam near Cowra in New South Wales. And the decision by the New South Wales government was to scrap the more than a billion dollar plan. The cost to raise the walls of Wyangala and expand the dam had ballooned from 650 million in 2019 into the billions. But proponents say the project would improve water security and flood management in the Lachlan Valley. Joanne Woodburn has been covering this story. The New South Wales government has decided to axe the plan. Why was that? So the New South Wales government has announced today that uh, it's cancelled plans for the expansion of the Wyangla Dam expansion for two reasons. One, the cost of the project and two, the environmental impact. So the state's water minister, Rose Jackson, has said that the cost of expanding the dam, so the project involved doubling the capacity of Wyangla um, by raising the dam wall, and the initial price tag was $650 million, and the minister has said today that that price has or cost has risen to more than $4 billion. She said that the expert advice, so documents that she's been given in terms of the final business case and the environmental impacts, she said that within that document, words such as significant, catastrophic and irreversible have been used to describe the environmental impacts if that project was to proceed. So it's for those two reasons that this project will not be built. I mean, that is a a fair explosion of the actual budget for it, never mind the other aspects. But people who are listening now might remember, um, it was around November last year, this extraordinary vision of the dam overflowing into the Lachlan River. And the aftermath of that was that people, there was so much water coming, the people of Forbes had to evacuate. So it was thought that this expansion would alleviate some of these issues. So how have locals responded to the decision today? Well, it depends who you speak to in terms of whether they people think um, that it would have it would mitigate floods to the extent that would save some of these downstream towns. So you're right. The the likes of um, so the Kaura district experienced major flooding, and then further west, Forbes was evacuated, and the floodwaters lay for months, months and months and months on farmers' properties, and then Condoblin and further downstream. Now the while the dam wall was would have been raised and would have been able to hold more water, it depends who you speak to as to whether or not it would have been able to mitigate the level or the volume of water that had to come out of Wyangla Dam in November last year. Certainly it would have been able to capture some of it, but those releases... Uh, well, still significant releases would have had to have been made from the dam to keep that storage safe 
and um, so it really depends who you speak to. But the it's a very split project in terms of reaction. Some farmers were really for the project because of the promise of greater flood mitigation, greater water reliability during dry times. But then there were other landholders at the top and the bottom of the river system, so in the in the far east and the far west, who were concerned because downstream they were worried that it might limit environmental flows that they rely on because they're floodplain graziers. So they rely on those releases that eventually make their way down the system, that they perhaps wouldn't get as much water and it would affect um, bird life as well, the ecology down there. People at the eastern end of the, the river system, so right near Wyangla, were worried about the impact on their properties because some of their properties would have had to have been inundated because of the capacity being increased. So it just depends who you spoke to and what part of the river system they lay in or they lie in um, as to whether or not they supported it. Equally, environmental groups were concerned about the impact on flora and fauna in not only the immediate area around the dam but downstream and towns, residents who were facing those evacuations, I mean, they were looking for pretty much anything that would give them greater protections from from such major flooding. So it depended. It was a very, very diverse range of views mm. and opinions all the way along the Lachlan River. But Joe, I'd imagine the problem remains. The problem stays the same. Um, there is an issue around water security. There is an issue around flood management in the in the area. So, so what happens now that this plan has been shelved? Well, yes, that's exactly right. Nothing has improved, nothing's changed because the status quo remains. So now the state government says it's going to go back and try and get uh, open up community consultation again and look at maybe infrastructure and non-infrastructure options to deliver some of that water security or improved water security and flood mitigation um, as part of like a regional water plan for the Lachlan, which is in draft form. So that public, the document's set to go on public exhibition at the end of September. Um, Timeline, a bit rubbery as to how long that's going to take. I didn't really get a clear answer from the government this afternoon, but it was hoped that that would start having some clarity or provide some clarity on the direction that the government would go in the coming months. Joanne Woodburn in Orange, thanks for chatting to Australia Wide. Thanks, Sinead. You're listening to ABC Australia Wide. It's a green sanctuary, just 12 k's from the heart of surfers' paradise in Queensland. But there's big changes in store for Narang National Park. Almost half of all the mountain bike trails in the National Park are set to be removed and rehabilitated in what conservationists say is a long overdue strengthening of environmental management practices. While the proposed changes are out for consultation, it's angered local recreational mountain bikers. Dominic Cansdale has this story. A 70-kilometre network of mountain bike trails weave their way through Narang National Park. They're popular, with Queensland's Department of Environment estimating that recreational riders use the trails 140,000 times a year. One of them is Chris Thompson. Traverses you through a range of ecosystems. So you're going on an adventure, you're going on a journey and connecting with the country. He's the president of the Gold Coast Mountain Bike Club. Riders from overseas had stopped and gone to ride that particular trail because of the value to the riders it provided. Um, and it's nationally known as a special trail for Narang. But there's change coming. 
Half of the 70 kilometres of trails have been illegally built over the past two decades. That's a big problem for conservationist group Friends of Narang National Park. So Narang National Park was gazetted in 2007 to 2009. Before that, it was state forest. Jessica Lovegrove-Walsh founded the group and was the former coordinator. But even under the Forestry Act, you can't go into a state forest and make trails without the land manager's approval. Most of the illegal trails run through the western portion of the 1600 hectare park, which is far harder to reach than the eastern section, where most of the sanctioned mountain bike trails are. The trails have been slowly weaving their way into this ecosystem over the last few years. Rainforest ecosystems have a higher volume of rain-threatened plants, and so we've identified a handful of rainforest plants that are in that small area that are threatened. And because the trails had already gone through before any botanical survey, because you know trail builders aren't going to be doing a botanical or cultural survey before they make their trails, um, it's very likely that we've lost endangered species in that area. The Department of Environment has proposed consolidating the 30 kilometres of legal trails, but phasing out and re rehabilitating the remaining illegal ones. So the draft management plan, it's really addressing the mismanagement that's occurred in this park over the last 20 or so years, which is a really big and admirable step by the department to try and rectify some of those wrongs. The plan names these illegal trails as the primary threat for nationally significant wetlands, lowland, rainforests, open forests and woodland that endangered animals like the koala and greater glider call home. The Narang or the Narang wall area uh, was a was a crossroads for many Indigenous groups. Clinton Brewer is a Kumbamari man and former Indigenous ranger at the park. Ecology is culture. Culture is ecology. So when we protect our our natural landscape, our waterways and our wildlife, it's protecting what is my Aboriginal culture. But it's not just my culture, it belongs to all Australia. It's everyone to look after. Clinton says the draft plan reaches a fair balance between conservation and recreation. Trails breed trails, essentially. And we've seen that, you see that like here every month. Uh, I don't know who does it. Um, I I couldn't see uh, a bushwalker or a birdwatcher wanting to cut down all these trees and dig up hundreds if not thousands of animal habitats. I couldn't see uh, anyone else doing that. It seems that, um, you know, the illegal mountain bike tracks are made by people who, you know, who uh, ride mountain bikes. While Chris Thompson says illegal activities on the trails should be called out, he has other concerns with the plan. To see that the department had just um, uh, selected or cherry-picked some literature to try and justify our predetermined position, I saw as is uh, very lazy and almost verging on incompetence. He says the research underpinning the draft plan is deeply flawed. They try and pick out, pull out literature from Northern Hemisphere studies that look at different forms of recreation to try and come up with a reason to put mountain biking as the highest threatening process. In a statement, a spokesperson for the Department of Environment says the plan was co-designed with traditional owners in consultation with recreation and conservation groups to highlight the key values of the Narang area. Folks will just go in and do what they want to do anyway and it'll become unmanaged trail development. And I think there's been 30 years 
of evidence of folks going in there and doing their thing. The department says it will enhance education and compliance measures to ensure appropriate visitor behaviour and respect the park's important natural and cultural values. Everything that we do in nature has an impact and the extent of that impact varies um, depending on what you're doing. Trails here in this particular patch of bush are impeding on a critically endangered ecosystem listed under federal legislation. You wouldn't think of going up to Binnaburra to Lamington National Park and, you know, there being an extensive mountain bike trail network up there, so why is it allowed here? Consultation on the draft plan closes next week. And thanks to Dominic Kensdale for that story from Narang National Park on the Gold Coast in Queensland. ABC Australia Wide. Winemakers want consumers to stop the snobbery and choose cask wine. Invented in South Australia's Riverland in 1965, cask wine, or a bag in a box, is being celebrated as an alternative to glass bottles for its smaller carbon footprint and lower production and freight costs. Goon bags, as they're often called in Australia, are all the rage in Europe and it's also starting to take off in Japan. Eliza Browledge sat down with Ashley Ratcliffe from Rika Terra Farms to see how they're going about making cask wine cool again. So you pull that off, you put that in like so. Nah. Look at that. And notice anything different? Nothing. No. Nothing different whatsoever, except for one's in a cardboard box and one's in a, in a glass bottle. There's so many advantages. If you look at all the research on the sustainability of casks over bottle, and not saying that we need to move moving away from bottled wine, but I mean you only need a glass of that, and it's no wastage. It can sit in the fridge for for months, and it'll be fresh as a daisy. It's great on premise because if you've got wine by the glass, then you don't need to open a bottle or throw a three quarter bottle away. Or if you've got a bottle that's, that's been open for four or five days, of course it's going to start to become oxidised. For on premise, the restaurants and etc., it's a perfect vessel. But the sustainability and the cost saving to people in the industry is amazing. When did you sort of think, let's go to an old invention made here in the Riverland mm-hmm. to sell you wine? Well, um, I mean, Thomas Angove can be thanked for this. And I actually spoke to John about this and I said, have you got any thoughts on the cask wines? And he said, well, look, it's something that we're no longer involved with. He gave me his blessing, which was nice. They had a lot of problems back then. I mean, the early inventors of these vessels, they did all the hard work, learning and making the mistakes and correcting whatever. So, you know, you've got to take your hats off to those people. And I spent three years in Yolumba as the operations manager looking after the two-litre cask there, my last role at Yolumba. So I learned a lot about casks back then. So what I'm seeing now there's there's massive savings it's convenient there's definitely the environmental benefits which is becoming amplified more and more what people want to know how they can do their bit for the environment so well yeah it's um it's exciting and the packaging looks good so a lot of this is going to go to japan and we're definitely going to make sure that the riverland as you said it's the home of bag and box cast wine is going to get its fair share is there sort of a figure on a a percentage or or a saving that you are aware of that you'll save with this packaging compared to bottles We worked out for us, if you made 10,000 cases of wine and you were to ship it to, say, Brisbane, because we know the figure of freight, it would cost you close to, I think my calculation is around $60,000. So by going to cask, because you've got more volume of wine on a single cask, you're down around 42. So you're sort of making close to that $20,000 saving by shipping the same volume, but your configuration in regards to what you're putting on a pallet that's going on a truck is significantly reduced. So that's less fuel, that's less wear and tear on roads, it's less emissions, a number of things. So 
there's so much research. If people start digging around on cask versus bottles, and I'm not in any way, we have a lot of bottled products, so we're not definitely saying go to all to cask, but bottles are important. But I think casks really have a, a special space at the moment. Ashley Ratcliffe from Ricketera Farms. Marcus Bradney buys fruit from Mr Ratcliffe and is now supplying him with cask wine packaging for his own line. The Gonzo Wines director says he got out of glass and committed his entire range to cask about five years ago. The idea for cask wines came about wanting to produce wines that go full side. And the big issue with having wine full side is glass. So glass and water isn't a good mix. So we looked to alternative packaging and the very first wines were in little 500ml stand-up pouches, um, which were aluminium. And then from there, we progressed into cask wines. And then it's kind of transitioned away from the pouches and we've kind of got this mantra of making cask wine cool again. What was sort of the um, response from, I guess, the industry initially to launching new wines in casks? It was hard. Launching cask wine in a premium space uh, you know, with premium wine is is not easy. The public perception of cask wine is still large format, five litres, 10 litres, you know, 25 bucks on a dusty shop down the back of the, you know, the, the, the local bottle shop. And so, you know, putting these wines out at $65 retail for three litres was a bit of a shock to a lot of people. And getting over the stigma of, of the quality and the history of poor quality in cask wine was difficult. But, you know, we're pretty tenacious. Gonzo Wines Director Marcus Radney. Richard Angove, whose grandfather Thomas brought cask wine to Australia almost 60 years ago, says it's exciting to see his family legacy gain new relevance. I think it's exciting. I think differentiated packaging options are always good to explore and it's good to see that the invention that my grandfather had, Tom Angove, more than 50 years ago now, 50 eight years ago, is still relevant today. And that's Angove family winemakers Richard Angove ending that story there from Eliza Burlidge. And finally, let me introduce you to Michelle Leonard, a woman with many strings to her bow. Growing up in Canamble in western New South Wales, she was surrounded in live music making and it was something she wanted other children to experience. So she made it her life's work to train young people in the bush to explore music. So far, she's trained 42,000 people. She's staged performances at the Sydney Opera House and she's also staged performances for TEDx. Last night, she was runner-up in New South Wales Rural Woman of the Year. And here she is speaking to David Clawton. I founded an arts organisation called Murrumbilla Voices. Michelle Leonard has travelled thousands of kilometres to run music and singing workshops for children and youth in regional and remote New South Wales. I grew up in a small and fabulous town in western New South Wales called Canamble. And when I was growing up, there was an enormous amount of live music making and an opportunity to actively participate intergenerationally in music making um, and indeed the wider performing arts as well. Uh, my father is 101 and when he was growing up, you could dance, you could go to an opera in Canamble, you could go to the Plaza Theatre. The space that we now rehearse in Baradine had dances with a live band uh, four to five times a week. As artistic director of Mirambilla Voices, Michelle takes students from years 3 to 12, from Kaduga to Mailong, from Wulkania to Weewar, even bringing the choir to Sydney to perform at the Opera House. Now from regional New South Wales, 
as my beautiful children come on stage, I'd, um, oh, they are just so gorgeous. They represent the most remote and regional third of New South Wales. They met together yesterday for our first rehearsal. I'm David Clawton, and I met Michelle Leonard while she was back in Sydney ahead of her next workshop at Baradine over six hours' drive away. Michelle involves high-caliber composers, musicians, and choreographers, and she estimates over 40,000 children have joined her musical workshops. (laughs) So my crazy plan was that to do that, um, I was uniquely placed to be able to pick the people in situ that would thrive in the environment I wanted to create. But what that meant was I had to go on the road and knock on the doors of all these schools and go and do workshops with a very uh, single pursuit in that I wanted everyone to have an opportunity to learn and to um, actively engage in a in singing and making um, an understanding of how to read music, like music literacy was disappearing. Um, And then from that, right at the very end, I would uh, select children and high school students that would thrive in the environment I was going to create. That's meant (laughs) now, all these years later, that I've seen over 42,000 children in workshops. Jalen Walford from Kola Rinnebrai first joined the Marimbilla Voices Workshop in Year 3. He has performed in the music video, written song lyrics and learnt to dance, play drums and sing. I get invited to go around places with the choir and they do cultural immersions and every five years or so they go to different places and they base their entire concerts and their themes on the different places and I am so happy to say that they're based their theme on my town and that's how I'm actually really involved into it and I love going back to Morabella every year. Michelle Leonard divides her time between a successful music career in Sydney and her rehearsals at Baradine between Coonabarabran and the Pilliga. She's won many awards including Australia Day Honours and now she's the New South Wales Rural Woman of the Year. With most of the children from Indigenous communities, reminders of a connection to country grounds the music in its place. I have only recently uh, discovered that in Gimilaroi, um, a billa we would all know means water. Muram or muram um, means where the water cuts and goes through. So the Ray River actually, when it's in flood, when it does a banker, it cuts straight across that plain, that flood plain, into the Murrumbilla Swamp and goes into the Bibleroy and Warrena Creeks, you know, all the way out there. I thought it meant place of deep fresh water. But after a decade's worth of subtle sort of conversations and people understanding, just like in Europe, that different languages connect and shape the languages either side of them. So Wiradjuri and Gamilaroi and Ualaway and Ualaway, they all sort of have these shared commonalities but a nuance as well um, that is profound, actually. Um, So I have discovered that and it gives me a great deal of uh, strength because water will always find its quickest course. It is vital to humanity and it is absolutely vital to Australia, particularly fresh water. So it was no surprise then that the place that is older than Stonehenge, the most um, extensive and sophisticated form of aquaculture and a place of aggregating thought and trade and and culture and law would be the Brewarrina fish traps. And um, over the course of many years, 18 plus years on the road, um, I've kept coming back to Brewarrina and its incredible stillness 
success and beauty and recognising that that way of operating and um, allowing the fingerlings to grow and create um, their own path in that waterway and to look at the, um, the knowledge and the understanding embedded in that incredible structure that really just looks like a net is thrown out over it, seeing thousands of pelicans over it over various years with um, Brad Steadman, an extraordinary linguist, um, and learning a lot about um, the the stories that are embedded in that. Um, it's really helped shape my worldview and, and this, um, I suppose we've started to use this as a wider analogy for what happens with the artists and the children as we all walk together and, and create these conversations on respect and connection to country. There really is some incredible people out there. Michelle Leonard, who was a runner-up in the New South Wales Rural Woman of the Year last year, and she was speaking to David Clawton, and thanks very much to Serena Locke for mixing all that beautiful music together. And that's Australia-wide for this Wednesday. I'm Sinead Mangan. I hope you're having a lovely evening. Cheerio. ABC Listen.